most of the CEOs that I work with, they are very competent. That's how they got there. They're competent. They're fast. They're decisive. They know what they're doing. And if you walk into their office and say, what do you think you should do? And what haven't you tried today? And you just list off those 10 questions. They're going to kick you out so fast, right? This is a $30,000 hour. Get out of my office if you can't help me, right? Because if I knew what to do and if I had thought of everything and if I had explored all of my options, you know, I, I would have done all of that already. Okay, so you have to come in with tactics. You have to come in with acumen, some level of expertise and experience. Hello and welcome back to the Kelly Goomber podcast. I'm your host, business mentor, personal brand strategist and style expert on a personal mission to inspire a minimum of five people a day to take action, do something different, and show up as the best person that they aspire to be with their personal brand. Love all your messages that I get via Instagram and LinkedIn and TikTok, lots of platforms, but to say that you've been inspired by something that you've heard on the podcast from one of the guests. Share all these, it means so much, not just to me, but also to the guests we have on, knowing that it's had a massive impact. Thank you for being one of my five a day. Drop a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify if you haven't already. These reviews just help so much with the types of guests that we can get on, the awareness and coverage. So if you haven't already, would be the best present ever if you can leave a review. In today's episode, I speak to Dr. Cory Block. He's a globally recognized business strategist, author, speaker, and shares his really deep insights in this podcast. He's so knowledgeable on so many aspects when it comes to business growth, employee engagement, and meaningful management, and how to build organizations of the future, which are down to the people. Dr. Cory believes that business is personal, which I love. It relates really nicely back into personal branding and how you show up. And we talk about the theory behind his new book, which I've read. I really loved it. And it is called Love at Work. Tune in. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Kelly Loomer podcast, Dr. Corey. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. I remember the first time I met you, we were at a conference and I spotted your shoes. It was a Marshall. Yeah, no, at um, Stephen, Stephen Covey. Covey. Stephen that's right. R. R. Covey. Covey, yeah. Yes. So the the son. Yes. The trust yes. and inspire guy. Yes. He's really, really cool. Did you get to meet him personally? I didn't. I he's, was there for this presentation. He's actually and... just super authentic and really genuine and generous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love him. I've been, I've had the privilege of speaking to him a few times just one-on-one and yeah, he's just really, really cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I also really enjoyed our conversation. I remember mm. exactly where we met. We were right next to the coffee machine. Yeah. And I said, you know, what do you do? And you told me and I noted your shoes. And I was like, we're going to connect. And I oh, just yeah, knew. Yeah, Because you're very fashion conscious and I'm very not <laughs> fashion conscious. I've always struggled with my, my fashion identity. By yeah. the way, she dressed me today. <laughs> so everything, everything that I'm wearing today, we're, it, with the exception of the shoes, which are mine, that's sacred space. Yeah. You love your vans. Kelly has, Kelly has dressed me and actually I'm, I'm so grateful for it because it is not an area of competence for me. Yeah. So, but that wasn't even how it started. I just always thought, you know what, we're going to connect. We connected on LinkedIn after that. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, we could, because you said, oh, let's have a glass of wine or do something. It was more that started it. And then our conversations then moved into the style aspect. You'd said, you know what, I'm going to update my personal brand. Mm. I really feel, and I had a little look at the website and I was like, yeah, I can see where I can add some, some pointers to that. And then the style piece, we had a great session out for getting some looks for your 
Yeah. Photo shoot. No, it was amazing actually, because I've never had somebody just shop for me or with me before. And so yeah. my, my wife was with us and yeah. I, you know, we were walking into the mall and she goes, what are you expecting? I said, I, I have no idea. I'm just, I'm hoping that we come out with like some new clothes that help me to feel like I'm finally dressing what I actually am. Yeah. And cause I've always, I've always felt just a little bit anachronistic with you know, my, my own fashion choices, not felt confident in that at all, but yeah, yeah, it was very helpful. And then that then leads into how confident you are in your photography and, you know, you're really taking it to to the next level. You've got a new website coming out. I've seen the initial. I've I've never had, I've never had confidence (laughs) problems on stage or in boardrooms or whatever. Mm. Like for for me to be on, on stage, I immediately drop into flow. I'm completely confident in that environment. I love it. I get a lot of energy there. It's when I step off stage and I'm like, oh, right. There's people and I have to communicate with them one-on-one and like, oh, not quite. That's when I become a little bit less. You. Yeah. 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 Maybe should we give people a backstory as to who you are and how you got into Me, what yeah. it is you're uh, doing? Yeah. A little intro. Right. Okay. Cole's notes. I started in my early twenties. I, when I was 23, I moved to Estonia, started my first five companies there as a serial entrepreneur, buried one, exited four, moved to Yemen, started a couple of new companies there, was there for five years left a year into the civil war and moved to Dubai. I've been in Dubai now almost 12 years. I started a couple of more companies here. My last exit was eight years ago. And now I've earned the right to just do whatever I want. So I have an employee roster of one. I have a very small team that helps me with marketing and media. And I am an executive coach. Yeah. Uh, so I, I write books, I do leadership training, and I do speaking. But what gives me the most amount of life is coaching. I love executive coaching because I get to be in those rooms with incredibly powerful people and they and they need opportunity for vulnerability and authenticity that they, uh, they very, very rarely get mm. in their lines of work. So maybe start with then how do they know they need a coach? Because I think when I first hired my first ever coach, mm. I didn't know I needed one. And I stumbled upon a, a free call with someone and that led to it. And then it opened up a whole world. Yeah, yeah. And I think, especially for maybe some of the executive positions that you're doing, they sure. don't know that they need one or they're no, told to have one or how does correct. it work? Well, listen, it depends on where you are in the world because that's not true of the Fortune 500 and the FTSE 100, right? The majority of the CXOs in the FTSE 100 have coaches. That's how they got there. That's mm-hmm. how they stay there. The majority of, of the CXOs in the Fortune 500 have coaches, right? That's how you get there. It's just in this part of the world, in this, in this region where there's still an association of coaching with therapy, right? So most of my clients, they don't know they need a coach because they think it's a form of therapy. It's not. If you're broken and you need to be fixed, go find a therapist. Okay. That's not my job. My job is to turn talent into Olympians. Okay. So if you're, and it it makes sense when you look at it through that lens, if you're, if you're a talented athlete and you think you might have Olympic talent, what do you do? You get a coach. Okay. And that's the same with every major industry, right? Like every world-class violin player has a coach. Every world-class surgeon has a coach and every world-class business leader has a coach, right? That's how they get there. Mm. That's how they stay there. And it's the same in every industry. Humans perform at their very best when they're with someone that understands the game just as well as they can play it. Do you think it's accountability as well as that? Yeah. Yeah. I really like, there's a a book just out called Becoming Coachable by friends of mine, uh, Scott, Jacqueline, and Marshall. And all of them, they clarify it really, really easily. Very, there are four basic ingredients to coachability. Mm-hmm. There's the, the openness to change, the openness to feedback, the openness to take action, and the openness to be accountable. But the thing is that once you're at the top of your game, you're the CFO in a group of companies with 50,000 employees, who are you accountable to? Like, yeah. Nobody knows the finance game better than you do. Not even the CFO. The CFO can read the reports, but doesn't really understand the numbers as well as the, or sorry, the, the CEO can read the reports, but doesn't 
understand the numbers as well as the CFO does. There's no one really to be accountable to except the board of directors. And we know numbers don't lie, but they can be made to tell incredible stories. Mm -mm -mm. So accountability really at that level is something that you choose. You choose for yourself because Mm -hmm. that's how Olympic athletes become Olympic. They become accountable. And it is by choice that they become accountable because they know that that's their only way. That's the only hope they have of, of finding out what they're truly capable of. And that sort of journey, does it vary from person to person or do you say no? And if you want to get the results, we're in it for a year or we're in it for six months or... Yeah, look, my preference is a minimum of six months. Yeah. Only because it takes that long to develop momentum. I need to understand who I'm working with. Yeah. Right. And I need to know what their limitations are, what their limiting beliefs are, what their blind spots are. And I need to get to the place where we have enough enough hours in in relationship that they're going to be mm-hmm. transparent with me. If they're going to be transparent and authentic with me, we can move fast. But yeah, we often we need time to get there. But I've I've found out actually the majority of my CXOs, they rush for accountability. They rush for authenticity and transparency because they have no one else to talk to about any of this stuff. Like I've had a couple of my CEO clients, one of my CEO clients a couple of years ago, obviously not going to mention names, but six and a half thousand employees comes to me and he says, he says, Corey, he says, my CIO just brought me a a $13 million project for digital transformation. And I can't read the bloody thing. I don't know who to talk to about that. Like I can't, I can't tell the executive committee that you know, I don't know how to, I don't really understand the fourth industrial revolution or artificial intelligence or blockchain or any of this stuff that he's got in this proposal. And I can't tell the board of directors, I have no idea what I'm doing here and I'm supposed to sign off on this, but I don't understand it. So I was like, okay, and it's those things, right? Like the world is just changing so fast that so many of our executives, they've earned the right to be there, you know, with 30 years of incredible productivity in a world that is fast dissolving, mm. right? That the world that earned them the right to be there isn't there anymore. Now it's very fast, right? The kind of complexity and speed at which they're expected to move is nothing like the the world that they mastered in order to get there. So who do they talk to about those vulnerabilities and those insecurities? And without fail, almost everybody has them, right? Mm. Everybody's got some sort of blind spot or insecurity. And often it's just imposter syndrome. Like, am I really supposed to be here? Like, am I really- Even at that level? Oh yeah, yeah, 100%. yeah. Yeah, it happens quite a lot. And it's just so refreshing for them to have somebody that they can, somebody in their life who's completely objective, who's outside of the organizational structure, who isn't reporting on them to HR or the board, and who's just saying, okay, just, just tell me everything. And whatever you want to work on, we'll work on that. Because if you're actually getting tactics and, and strategies that will help you, you're going to become much more productive, powerful, empathetic, communicative, and all of that. And that's, that's going to impact the bottom line of your organization. Not only are you going to live a healthier and happier and statistically longer life yeah. if you have that, but your company is going to perform better as well. So the ROI on coaching is, I don't know, easily about 40x at that level. If you look at ICF, the numbers are somewhere between 550 and 780, but I'm pretty sure at an executive level, it's much, much higher than that. And how do you then... I say, keep up with that as well, I guess, from the, you know, you, you obviously have a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And, you know, so you'll go and have conversations with them. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you write books, do you read, do you conference? Like, how, how do you keep up on that fast paced fast paceness that can also support them? Yeah. So like, I can't, you can't just get, I look, I love ICF, okay? Yeah. The International Coaching Federation. But you can't just get an ICF certification and walk into a CEO office and expect to coach. It's not going to work right? Because look, most of the CEOs that I work with, they 
are very competent. That's how they got there. They're competent. They're fast. They're decisive. They know what they're doing. And if you walk into their office and say, what do you think you should do? And what haven't you tried today? And you just list off those 10 questions. They're going to kick you out so fast, right? This is a $30,000 hour. Get out of my office if you can't help me, right? Because if I knew what to do and if I had thought of everything and if I had explored all of my options, you know, I, I would have done all of that already. Okay, so you have to come in with tactics. You have to come in with acumen, some level of expertise and experience. So for me, I'm, I'm an addicted learner. I'm consistently, I'm addicted to competencies is what it is. And that's really, that's really probably the most defining thing about me. I'm curious about everything. And every once in a while, I satisfy my curiosity with a PhD or writing, writing a book. Or As some, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I satisfy my curiosity by getting certification in artificial intelligence from MIT and finance at Harvard, because that's, that's my weekend. That's my that's And you my enjoy evening. that. Yeah, I love that. And so I don't find staying on top of things very difficult. I don't find coming in, adding value every time difficult. I find that I'm always just a step or two ahead because they have access to somebody that's consistently every day addicted to learning at a postgraduate level in all areas of business and Mm -hmm. psychology. So for me to walk in and add value is not difficult at all. I've learned something this week that I can apply to whatever it is that you're going through. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that piece, when, when, did you have a coach when you set up all your businesses? Was that some- I did. We didn't call it coaching at that time, right? But we didn't have, in the early 2000s in Estonia, it was post-Soviet and pre-technocrat. So we had no, there were no VCs, there were no accelerators, no incubators. None of that was, has, has been invented at that time, yeah. right? So this was prior to Vision 5.9 for those of you who know Estonia, right? So we, it was like early, early days. So it was just me in the street. And so entrepreneurship was really just kind of like winging it and throwing money at ideas and hoping that some of it sticks. And honestly, the first year was really, really hard. But my success and my rapid success, I credit to my mentors. Mm -hmm. And they they were my coaches. But actually, functionally speaking, they were just men and women that were ahead of me on the curve Mm -hmm. that I respected, that I liked. And I would just offer to buy them coffee or dinner and just hang out with them and say, what are you reading? And tell me, tell me what I should do about this and ask. And they loved being helpful, mm. right? That became the coaching industry now. Yeah. Now it's a whole industry and we charge for it and we rightfully charge for it. It's very good. And my mentors, I probably owe you a lot of money. I'm not, I'm not shying away <laughs> more, from that. More than just you know a who, dinner. <laughs> yeah, you know who you are. I've listed your names in my book, right? So those are documented. But yeah, I've, I always had, I've always had mentors yeah. and mentors, coaches, leaders, whatever. I've had people that are further along than I am in the curve, more intelligent than I am in certain areas of life. And nobody's going to be more intelligent than you at everything, mm. right? But at certain things, yeah, you, you need mentoring, you need coaching because we're better together as humans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love that. So speaking of love, yeah. new book. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we're on a, a morning daytime show yeah, now. Yeah, fantastic, just right? Your- <laughs> I've brought a new book. I'm so yeah. proud. I, so I, I didn't know that you write books every year. Like that's a thing yeah. that you, you... Well, my, my wife has forbidden me from getting another doctorate degree, so... Is She's that like, because every weekend's taken up? With- no, it's because it looks silly on LinkedIn. I mean, you can, <laughs> I've got two masters and two doctors. Don't be impressed, by the way. That's my hobby, right? Like I don't, I don't watch football. I don't collect classic cars. I read, I write journal articles and every once in a while I collect a degree. But after you've collected a number of degrees and a number of certifications, you kind of need to, you need to stop. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise it just looks ridiculous. You, I mean, if you looked at my LinkedIn page, it's a week long. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's bad. So now I'm thinking I need other creative ways to gather information. And so for me, I love the research process and I love the writing process. And I still hold a chair as a professor of strategic management at Monarch School of Business in Switzerland. So that keeps me, you know, focused on making sure that I'm representing academically whatever it is that I'm researching. But now instead of my research resulting in a degree, I 
Put it into a book. I put it into a book, yeah. So the latest book. The latest book is, is Love at Work. Actually, all of my books are product of my own frustration with the world. So I just become really deeply irritated about something and then it, I write a book about it. So yeah, a couple of years ago, so Spartan CEO was the result of having like incredible CEO coaching clients, right? Who are just amazing, high performing, really, really on the ball, really sharp, really highly productive. And then having really mediocre CEO coaching clients. And I was like, oh man, like, and it, it didn't seem that the, the number of people in your organization or your title or the size of your office had any indication at all of whether you're going to be like a high performing CEO or kind of a mediocre performing CEO. And so I was like, I, so I started to think deeply about what actually are the differentiators and drivers between high performing and mediocre performing executives. And so I wrote those into a book and it's the six pillars of executive performance. It's called Spartan CEO. And I was very fortunate to have Joe Decina, who's the founder and global CEO of Spartan Race, which I'd love to do. I'd, I run the trifecta every year. So I use that as kind of like a an Uber story nice, to, to bring yeah. into the book. But that was my first frustration with the world was why are some of my coaching clients just not great? Yeah. And some of them are just amazing. So those, those are the six pillars. Then my, my second book was business is personal. And my frustration there was the fact that people would say, oh, it's, it's not personal. It's just business. You've heard the phrase, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, we're going to go with someone else this time, but it's not personal. It's just business. Well, that's not true. It's not true. It's never been true. And it'll never be true. Every business decision that's ever been made takes resources from one set of families and moves it to another set of families. We call it a business, but actually it's an economic tribe, right? You might have a thousand families, each of which is sending a representative to play an economic game every day. But yeah, every business decision moves resources from one set of families to another and maybe robs it from a third set that we can't even see. Okay, so business is personal. It'll always be personal. And every single one of us is dedicating half of our lives every day to work, right? And that's not other than your life. It is your life. It is personal. Anything you're doing with half of your life every day should be as meaningful as possible, right? So yeah, business is personal, whether individually or collectively. I and see then, that about branding as well, though. The future yeah, of business is personal because it's your personal brand is what people buy into. 100%. You are personal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, are, you are your brand. You are your message. And for me, like, and that for me, I have, I'm in the, the really, I don't know, I'm, I, I guess I'm really honored to be in the place where I can just absolutely represent myself. Because I find that so many people have to pretend to be something a little bit different than what they actually are mm. in order to get the job done. And I, I don't have to do that. I don't, need, I don't need more accolades. I don't need more success. I'm actually doing very well. And it allows me to, to pick fights like the one that I pick in Love at Work, right? So my irritation with the world that led to this was about, I don't know, maybe a year ago. I was, um, I was talking to the top 55 senior managers and executives at Circo, large multinational I think it's 70,000 employees or 50 years old or something like that. Massive company. And I was in front of them. We were just talking about an emotional intelligence and connecting with each other in leadership and employee engagement and why, you know, how we get people to, to really buy into what they're doing with their lives every day. And I said from the stage, and it was really kind of uncalculated. I just said, I said, why can't we all just love each other? Right. And wouldn't you do better? Wouldn't you perform better if you knew for a fact that the person that was working next to you loved you and had your back? And it was a totally uncalculated moment. And I was like, on this stage, I'm thinking, oh, shit, did I really say that? <laughs> right? And Why, I was kind were of like, you worried what you I said? was. Yeah, I was worried. Internally, I'm worried. Externally, I'm totally, I'm owning it. I'm buying in, right? I'm buying into my own stuff. I'm looking around and immediately I'm looking for eye contact and I'm looking for the nods, right? I'm looking for the eyebrows going up, going, yeah. Yeah. And so I asked, like, how many of you, your experience of work would improve? The quality of your life would improve if you knew for a fact that there were three people in this room that completely loved you and had your back, like everybody's hands go up. And I'm like, so why aren't we talking about that? And so I wrote a book about it. It's born out of this frustration that the, the highest 
potential quality of relationship we have between humans, mm -hmm. love, right, is intentionally exiled from the place where we spend the most time with each other, work. Ah. That doesn't seem right to me. So what are some of the things that people can be doing to, I mean, I know to read the book, but if, if it's, if you're going to start to develop that, 100%, what yeah. should you do? Well, I don't, I don't recommend you walk into your room and just start telling everybody you love them, okay? <laughs> like you walk into the office, I love you, Susie. <laughs> I love you, Jerry. I love you, Tom. Like, you, like weirdo. Yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. HR is going to call you in. Yeah. We're going to have a discussion, right? <laughs> so there are definitely some nuances that, yeah. that can be brought in. One of them is just becoming a lot more affective, a lot more connecting, recognizing that the other people in your office are there just like you for reasons that have nothing to do with the office, right? You're not there because you're passionate about forms or Excel spreadsheets or writing another PowerPoint presentation. No, no, none of you are there for, for that. You're there because you're passionate about your family, about your dreams, about your career aspirations, about your goals that have nothing to do with the day-to-day -day tasks. And all of you can bond on that. Mm. You can bond by connecting about the fact that you're there to feed each other's families and educate each other's kids and, you know, put gas on each other's cars and food on each other's plates. And you do that by playing an economic game together. Yeah, very practically speaking, one of the things I did a few months ago, and I kind of lost my breath at the time when I started doing it, I just made a decision one day while I was writing the book. I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this. Every single email I've sent out, I think probably since March 20th of this year, 2023, I sign off, love Corey. That's it. And I just decided, I said, line in the sand, I am not going to sign any of my emails with sincerely or best wishes. Like, no, none of that. Just love Corey. Everything strangers, CEOs, customers, like procurement managers that I've never met before, engineers. I'm writing Love Corey. Nobody seems to mind, by the way. I've, I've been doing this for months. There's yeah. like thousands Has of Has anyone emails. commented on it? No. Well, people have said, yeah, that how much they like it. Yeah. But nobody's ever said, well, I think you're going too far. Or you're getting a little personal there, Corey. There's been no negative response at all. I have not been reported to a single HR <laughs> <laughs> business partner that I'm aware of. And I've, I've worked probably since I started doing that, I've worked in 30 plus companies and I've been communicating with a hundred plus more and just writing love at the end of everything from the group CEO, right down to, you know, the, the secretary that's arranging a meeting, right? Like it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's something that I think is very easy. Yeah. Just sign off all your emails with love and see what happens when you inject just the word into the formal discourse a little bit. And another book, Vanessa Van Edwards' book, Cues, mm. which I find really interesting, C-U-E-S, is yeah. about, she says that you should do an audit on your emails. Nice. And, you know, charisma comes from, her opinion, the combination of warmth yeah. and competence. Right. And when you combine both of those, you get someone who is charismatic, who we want to spend more time with, blah, blah, blah. Yep. So from a personal branding perspective, this really, I find this curious because you know, a personal brand is not just who you when you meet the person. It comes from that email correspondence. Yeah. And she says you should audit your emails. So go through your last five emails and look how many warm words you used hmm. and how many competent words you used. Oh, interesting. And love is a warm word. Yeah. So then that brings itself a, an expectation from a personal brand. Yep. I think that's quite obvious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think for me, it's following the peak and rule, right? we build memories and we experience people based on the, the peak highs, the peak lows and the end, mm -hmm. whatever. So you can have an entire relationship or an email, right? You'll remember the high point in the email, the low point in the email and the end. And the end is always warm, right? If it's always love, Corey, then it doesn't matter how abrasive or corrective I am during the email. I can yeah. actually be abrasive and at the end, love, Corey. And so something happens in their mind where they're like, oh, 
I must be misinterpreting the email because even if I, even if I have been abrasive or confrontational, Towards to the point, or- yeah, they'll look at it and they'll, they'll question their own interpretation of it. Cause I'm saying love Corey. So then they'll say, maybe there's a warmer interpretation than the one that I've got in my head. So they'll actually default toward the warmest potential interpretation of the email. So even if I was unintentionally abrasive or obtuse in the email, they might read love Corey and think, oh, well, he couldn't have meant what I thought he meant because well, he's just said he loves me, right? <laughs> with love. And that, what's the implied meaning here? Yes, with love. I've, I've written all of this with love. Okay, well, what's the most warm, loving interpretation I can possibly read this email through? And I think that in, in a small way is kind of a, an, it's an indicator of what I want businesses to do. Yeah. I want us to be thinking, you know, what is, I want boards of directors to be thinking, what is the most loving way for us to, to use the resources that are available to us? I want CEOs to be thinking, what is the most loving strategy I can pursue for profit? I want CIOs to be thinking, what is the most loving way to interpret this data set? And I think we can insert like a little love bias into everything that we're doing in the office. Mm-hmm. And I think probably, not probably, I know for a fact, because I've done the research on it, I've documented, it's profitable. Mm-hmm. Okay, people live, humans who are living who are working in environments where they feel loved and supported, they work harder. They take two less leave days every year. They work an extra hour a week of discretionary effort. There's 41% less absenteeism, 59% less turnover, 17% higher performance. When they work in those environments, the company makes more money. And the employees, employees who feel that they're loved and supported, they get more opportunities for advancements and promotions than those Mm -hmm. who don't because they perform better, right? And they live healthier lives. They live happier lives. And now we're finding out that they statistically live longer lives. And wouldn't you want to be able to do that? If you could, if you could find a way to make more money and help everybody in your company live a longer life, would you want to do that? Absolutely. All right. So, would. yeah. So those CEOs that are still leading by fear are valuing something more than money. What are they valuing? Well, it's a good question. Yeah. The answer. No, I wouldn't presume to know the mind of a CEO. I guess they're all different. True. The book, you know, publishing your book, we talked about this just pre before we came on about self-publishing, getting a yeah, book yeah. out there. Writing a book is great for your personal brand and it's great for your visibility. Yeah. It's not something that makes money though. I think the reality, it, no, if we're being honest in here, as, as having self-published before, even publishers, I think, yeah. will have this idea that we could be the next J.K. Rowling. Yeah, um, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Everybody, you know, thinks their baby's the cutest, right? <laughs> Right. Oh, my baby's cuter than all the other babies in the world, right? And actually, that's probably not true. Two percent of all of the all of the musicians make all of the money from music. Two percent of all of the surgeons make all of the money from from you know specialized surgery. Two percent of all of the coaches make the high end level coaching money. Two percent of all of the authors make the money from books, right? Mm-hmm. So this is and it's true in almost every industry that two percent is going to make like eighty percent of all of the income from that industry. Two percent of the you know the FMCG brands make all of the money from FMCG. So it's it's true in almost every industry that you have that, and the chances are very low that your book is going to be in those two percent. And it might be, it may be that your baby is the cutest baby on the planet, objectively speaking. But <laughs> not enough people are going to interact with pictures of your baby to ever even know that. Yeah, yeah. So in the meantime, what you need to know is you need to know what your baby actually is, right? So my book it stems from this not idea from the truth that the word author and the word authority are the same word. Mm. So. Now, when I go into like a CHRO's office or a GC CEO's office, and I say, hey, listen, you know what? And they say, what do you want to talk about? I say, I want to talk about love at work because I wrote the book on it. And here it is. I want to talk about executive performance. I wrote the book on that too. Here it is. And it gives you, it's a very good starting place for conversation. And it's also a very good jumping off place for trust because I can tell you, look, you know, I've, I've written the book on it's here. You don't have to get me to do any of this. I don't have to coach any of your executives. I don't have to train any of your leaders. Read the book, implement it. You'll make the money. 
Okay, almost everything I'm going to deal, I'm going to do with you is here. It's documented. It costs 30 bucks and it's on your table. In fact, you don't even have to spend the 30 bucks. I'm giving it to you for free. I will sign it. It's worth more than the money that you didn't pay for it. And you have all of the information. Implement this, you will be more profitable. And that builds a tremendous amount of trust, right? So from a personal branding perspective, it makes sense. Write your book. Mm. If that's your message, get it out for a couple of different reasons. One is that author authority positioning, right? It helps you with your personal branding. Secondly, it helps you with your clarity of thought, right? You're going to, in the process of writing, you're going to digest and redigest all of the information that's available on that particular topic. And you're going to hone and clarify your particular message in that topic so that by the time you've written the book, you've read it a dozen times, right? Not only have you written the book on that subject, but you've read that book 12 times or more in the process of writing it. So nobody knows that material better than you. Then you can actually walk into those offices with confidence. Do you think if you were a speaker, you get paid more because you've got a book? Yeah, 100%. I believe too, but it's yeah. that kind of confirmation for those that are listening and watching going, okay, you think that the book's going to make you money? It's yeah. actually what comes out of having published a book. That's right. Yeah. So all of my books to date are break even. Whatever any money that they generate, like I've, I've made money on the last three books, not this one, but I've made money on the last three books and they've got, gotten into black on the publication and self-publication. And then whatever money I make from them, I use to print more books. Mm-hmm. or to do advertising, marketing, publication. So the book itself isn't ever income generating. Yeah, It's just marketing, pure marketing. Uh, what other things do you think you've done when it comes to your personal brand that makes you stand out that these CEOs are coming to you and not going to someone else? Shoes. Really? Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times, probably 12 times just in the last six weeks where I've walked onto stage or I've walked into a an HR conference or into a private conference and somebody comes up to me and goes, the shoes, I love the shoes. Or they'll pull somebody else and say, hey, come here, it's the guy with the shoes. It's the guy. So they don't even know my name, right? But they know it's the guy with the shoes, the guy that'll wear like a a tailored suit and $50 vans. Yeah. So this has become part of my personal brand for sure is is the the vans. And makes it stand out and makes- Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I love the content. I'd love to know a little bit about any myths in the industry. Coaching industry? Yeah, I think that there's quite a few. And I'd love to know about, I guess, sort of any advice to those that are going, okay, I'm ready to upscale my presence, executive presence. What should I be doing? Kind of thing. Right. Good. In the industry of coaching, I've worked with quite a few. I think it's a lot of people that actually think, okay, I've done one thing. I think I can be a coach and coach someone else. Right. It's quite a saturated industry, would you say? There's no doubt. You can throw a rock anywhere in Dubai and hit a coach, Yeah, right? Because everybody- Don't do that, by the way. No, don't throw rocks at people. That's mean. That's mean. But during COVID, right, thousands of people lost their jobs and ICF was online handing out certifications and coaching and everybody can pivot to coaching. One of the myths that's been perpetuated because of that is that anyone can coach anyone else in anything. Okay. And that's abjectly not true, right? I mean, it doesn't take much to think, to recognize this, right? Not just any football coach can coach an Olympic football team. You can't just take any swim coach and put them in front of an Olympic swimmer and say, you know, coach this one. It's not going to work. Okay. At the highest level of play in any game, you need a coach that knows the game as well as the player can play it. So Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, both phenomenal footballers. They both have coaches. You think either of those coaches can play football as well as they can? No, of course not. But they can coach at that level. Mm. So there's a certain amount of industrial arrogance 
in the coaching world that says that anyone can coach anyone else in anything. And that's not true. Mm. I think at a mid-level management layer, probably it's okay because mid-level managers still have senior executives to go to for technical support or for, you know, vulnerability or insecurity in terms of competence. Hey, I've never done this before. Hey, I don't know how to do this. They have somebody up up line to talk to. But at the C-suite, you don't. As soon as you become the CFO, that's it. You're the highest level in finance. As soon as you become the CMO, that's it. You're the highest level in marketing. Who are you going to go to? Who are you going to talk to? You need somebody that has, and then if you're going to have a coach, the coach can't just come in and say, well, what haven't you tried? Well, I know what I haven't tried right? I, I know, like I, I've ideated all of my ideas. That's how I got to CMO. That's mm. how I became the CDO of a multi-billion dollar organization, right? It's not going to work, those kinds of questions. You have to have the acumen to step in and say, okay, like I've studied marketing. I know the basic processes of working in a number of different industries in marketing. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? I've seen at Microsoft, they did this. And I saw at Apple, they did that. And when I was working with the United Nations, this is what we tried. So maybe have you tried that? And that kind of experiential learning becomes really, really important Mm -hmm. at the C-suite level. And that's why executive coaches, not what I would call non-advisory coach, that's really what ICF is representing is a whole field called non-advisory coaching. And there's there's great benefit to that at a mid-level management layer. But above that, when you're talking about your senior executives, it hits its limits very, very quickly. Mm. And if, even if you ask 100 coaches, for example, Scott Osman and Jacqueline Lane, who are leading 100 coaches, which was founded by Marshall Goldsmith, they would tell you that the majority, if not all of their coaches are advisory coaches. They have experience. They have education. They have an MBA at a minimum. They've been you know, 20 years in their industry or in their, their verticals at a minimum mm. before they get to, to coach at that level. So yeah, there's a, there's a huge, there's a huge vacuum of that level of coach here in the UAE for sure. But there's an industrial arrogance that goes alongside it that says that anybody can coach anybody in anything. And at an Olympic level, you will never see an Olympic coach ask their athlete, what do you think you should do? How do you think you should approach this? That's a really interesting perspective, but true in that space, I believe, um, in order to get the best, Mm. it's not all about the answers are in you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, humans have always been better together. We've been better together with two different influences, coaches and competitors, Yeah. right? There's no doubt, like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. I saw an interview once with Ronaldo. He was asked about Messi, you know, like, are you guys friends? And he's like, no, we've never been to dinner together, but I don't see why we couldn't because, you know, undoubtedly a better footballer because he exists. Because there's that healthy competition. Yeah, look, the two of them, they only meet on the field one or two times a year. That's it. They're not ever direct competitors, ever. But they've been passing the Ballon d'Or back and forth between the, each other for like, they did it for like a decade or more. And it's, and it's that kind of competition where we see like Apple versus, it wasn't just Apple versus Microsoft. It was Steve Jobs, right? Versus Bill Gates, yeah, yeah, right? Actually, and these were right. personal yeah. rivalries. And the same thing happened in 1997 when Apple was like 90 days away from insolvency. It was, it was Bill Gates that stepped in and bought a third of Apple's preferred stock and rescued the company. And people asked Bill, like, why would you do that? And Bill's like, well, if Apple dies, then Microsoft will never know what it's capable of, right? That I kind love of love that. That kind of health, <laughs> and it goes right back to like Raffaello and Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel and their healthy debate over who was the best painter of their age, right? Like that that competitive landscape drives all of humanity for, yeah. forward, right? Even the, the you know the the space race between the Americans and the Russians, and anyway, there's there's some of that in coaching. We're only going to know what we're capable of mm. if we have somebody right next to us that we think is competent in the same thing that we're trying to be capable, telling us, yeah, you can push a little further than you think you can. Yeah. And 
and you can probably do it. And then we become convinced, yeah, I can probably do it. And then we do it, right? And then we're surprised. And then the coach is like, oh yeah, good job, right? But that's, <laughs> that's how world records get broken. That's how we keep lifting more than any human has ever lifted before and running faster than any human has ever run before is because there's a coach right next to that athlete saying, you can probably do something that's never been done before. I know enough of the game to know that you're capable of doing something that's never been done. How do your clients find you then? Is it word of mouth or? Typically so, yeah. yeah. Word of mouth, sometimes through the CHRO. I speak at a lot of HR conferences and so CHROs will, or HR directors will bring me in and introduce me to their C-suite. Sometimes it's the C-suite themselves. I'll meet them out running Spartan races or, you know, something. And yeah, yeah. yeah and then they'll bring me in. So usually it's either one way or the other. And then it doesn't matter which way I come in, we got to go through procurement. Right. So there's always a, there's always the procurement. There's always someone layer. waiting, yeah. stuffing there. Yeah, going. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, people usually find out through word of mouth or actually more recently, a number of my clients have just been Googling, you know, who's the top business coach in the UAE. And then they find me because it's all over the internet. And I'll be really honest with you. I have no idea how to even defend that title. There's no criteria by which one would even make that particular claim. And yet there it is. It was said of me by a couple of PR firms and then, you know, like Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine and Sherm and CIPD. And I was very honored by it. But I had this, I had this conversation with Marshall Goldsmith last year because he's got on, his, on this book, he says, the world's number one executive coach. And I was like, Marshall, I don't know how to do that, man. Like I've got this claim on my website. And he says, no, no, no. He says, you know, you're right. There's no criteria by which I could even defend that. Plus I'm not everybody's cup of tea. But you know what it does? You know what it does? It means that when people are Googling the best executive coach in the world, they're going to find me or Mark Thompson or Tony Robbins, right? And then this is like, <laughs> he's, he's a pretty humble guy. He's like, but, but if they choose me, then I'm going to be in their office, you know, and they might, they might've brought me in as a hood ornament because they just want to be coached by the best in the yeah. world. What they don't know is that they're going to have to tie their life to me for a year. And I know what I'm capable of and they have no idea. That's exciting. Yeah. And that for me, that gives me all of that. So when, when people are Googling that and that's, you know, and that's how some people have found me over the last number of months now is who's the best business coach in the UAE. And I shy away from the claim, but you know what it does is it gets me into the rooms of people that really, really need me. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually care then how I got there. What matters is that I'm in front of a leader that's got 90,000 families in their care. And they're asking me for tactics that will help to make them more profitable, a more caring and loving manager, a more caring and loving leader to help them to see around corners of disruption and innovation in their industry. And they're transparent with me and authentic with me in a way that gives me latitude to help them to make very, very difficult, very complex and very risky decisions. And I'm honored by that. And they might not know what I can do in that year that we're going to spend together, but I do. Do any of them think about their personal brand? Oh yeah, lots actually. Yeah, most of my executive clients, they recognize, look, there's, there's 23% fewer executive roles on the planet now than there were 30 years ago. And they're paying 900% more than they were. And why is it less? 30 years. Why, why? Oh, because of consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, okay. globalization, regionalization, they're just bringing everything together. And so there's, because C-suite positions are, are very expensive. So having fewer of them makes it, more you know, money. yeah, but then we're just paying the fewer more. Right? Oh, okay, because then it's yeah, 900% exactly. so more. It ends up not being cheaper. We're just paying them more, that's all. But there are fewer, right? So the competition for those C-suite positions is much higher. And so getting into the position is the first hurdle. Staying in the position is the second. And so I find that personal branding is more and more becoming a, a delimiter of success at those levels. So when you're at N-1, N-2, 
you really need to be conscious of what you're putting on social media, that you are putting stuff onto social media, that you are visible, visible, thought leading, presentable. Remember people are, we're humans, not resources, right? So even the hiring body, they eat with their eyes first. And the ATS, the applicant tracking system that's going to sort through your CV is going to look for certain keywords. And if they're not there, or if they're clouded around with other keywords that shouldn't be there, yeah, you're never going to get seen by a human. That's it. So you need to know how to write for the ATS and you need to know how to present yourself for other, for other people that are looking. Because once you get to the C-suite, you're not just the CFO, you're the brand, Yeah. right? You're not just the CMO, you're not just the CHRO, you're the brand. And we ask that question when we're hiring onto the C-suite before we even interview you. Mm. So we're going to be looking, stalking you for the last probably year and a half, two years on your social media to find out if you actually are the brand. So what are you saying? Who are you saying it to? How are you saying it? Mm. And if you're aiming for the C-suite, if you really do want to be competitive for that top role, you have to be conscious of that early. Because it's nearly like you don't see anything, you don't make an opinion. That's right. So it goes both ways in it. Well, you think you don't say something, then it doesn't matter. But equally, that says, I think sometimes even more. Yeah, it's better to say something. And it's extremely important that you mind what you say. Mm. Yeah, it matters a lot. So personal branding, I think personal branding and executive branding, once you're in the role, is extremely important, not just to the individual who's trying to get the job, but to the company. Because remember, for every C-suiter that's in the company, you're a spokesperson. You are the brand. Yeah. Right? Because all all you need to do- Ambassadors. Yeah. You just need to screw up one time and they say, oh, the CFO of Unilever said this. It's like, oh, man, (laughs) but I'm supposed to be a finance guy, right? Like, And it's- yeah, so it's becomes, it becomes personal branding and executive branding become part of the risk structure of the organization at that level. So you said a book every year. Yep. What's been the annoyance or the frustration yeah. um, for the next one? Is it there? Yeah, it is actually. I've already started writing it. It's, it's called Undistractable. Mm. And it's born out of my frustration with the fact that our ancestors have not prepared us to live in the world that we've created for ourselves. Yeah, I know. I'm like digesting all of that going, yeah, okay. Each and every one of us, we are apex predators, right? We are the most dangerous, most intelligent animals on the planet. And each of us is the product of 10,000 successful generations of survival and adaptation. You're here because the last 10,000 iterations of your genetic code made it work. Whatever the world threw at your ancestors, they survived. They gathered enough calories to have kids and protect those kids until they could gather enough calories and have kids for themselves. Okay? They succeeded in a world that no longer exists, a -hmm. world of scarcity and violence. So we have a lot of tools in our heads that are prepared, that are there to help us to survive in a world of scarcity and violence. Meanwhile, we don't live with scarcity or violence. We're in now, relatively speaking, the most peaceful time in all of human history, present conflicts included, right? Notwithstanding, we're not where we should be, but we're definitely not where we were a thousand or even a hundred years ago. So one of the things that our, our ancestors have not prepared us for is complexity. We're not prepared for complexity or convenience, for example. Like the idea that you can eat three times a day, that's only about 100 years old. That you can eat whatever you want three times a day, it's about 30 years old. That you can get it in 30 minutes or it's free, that's about a decade, right? So our ancestors had no idea what to do with that level of convenience and complexity. Like my dad, I think in the 80s when he was in his management role, this was before the internet and before you know, disconnected phones, all of our phones were on wires at that time, but he would have had maybe 200 to 300 human interactions every day. And now we're averaging close to four and a half thousand in the developed world. Yeah. You are averaging four and a half thousand human interactions every day. That's insane. That's my point. Yeah. Okay. So we don't have an upper limit 
that says, hey, idiot, you're, you're taking on too much complexity. It's going to hurt you because none of our ancestors had to deal with that. So they've, they didn't develop a kind of red flag. There's no red flag saying this is it. That's the most you can possibly take on. No. So we're constantly putting things on our task list because of FOMO. We're constantly inviting new complexity. We're constantly inviting new relationships. And meanwhile, our, we know cognitively we're, we're only able to handle about 250 acquaintances at any given time. And then people start falling off. And for those of you who are as old as I am, you know that like you're forgetting now the names of people that you cared about deeply. And you're wondering why, why am I becoming, is it dementia? Is it early? No, it's not early onset dementia. You have an upper limit to the number of people you can hold because none of your ancestors had to ever deal with more than 250 people their entire lives. Yeah. You're not prepared for this. This level of connectivity and, and choice and convenience and complexity, we're not ready for this. So in order to maintain focus, we have to put limits on that and they have to be consciously applied limits. Mm -hmm. And that is where undistractable comes in. I help you to prioritize what really does need to be prioritized. And I help you to set consciously applied limits to the complexity and convenience that you're going to allow into your life. That aspect on the sort of remembering people's names. Mm -hmm. I remember until I became cabin crew, I felt like I was kind of good at remembering names. Yeah, yeah. And then throughout crew, I lost it. But then mm. we were meeting so many people every yeah. week on new flights that it got to the point that it went in one ear and out the other. That's right. And I knew the person opposite me, which you're supposed to in an emergency so you can call on them. And that was the one name that I remembered. And I was yeah. like, has it been ever since then? Or it is just that we can't remember? It's not just you. Yeah. Everybody. I'm sure, I'm sure all of you are feeling this. Yeah. Like, yeah, I started to think deeply about that. And about why I was forgetting the names of people that I cared deeply about. And it just, it occurred to me that we're just not designed for the world that we've built for ourselves. Mm. We're designed for a world that is very, very much more challenging than this world is. The challenges that we have now are abundance challenges. We have too much food. And so we eat ourselves to death. We have too much complexity. And so we take on too many opportunities and we burn out. You know why we burn out? Because the world is too good. There are too many good things to do. And that's the problem is not that you're saying no to bad things. You're not saying no to bad things. You're saying no to good things and you feel bad about that. Yeah. Right. But there are just many, too many, there are many more good things to do every day than can ever be done. And that's the truth. And it's a whole, it's a horrible cold truth. Maybe it's a warm truth. Maybe that's the warmth of it is that the world is so abundant and so incredible. And we have access to so much technology and healthcare and communications and opportunity that our ancestors never had access to. The world is so good. It's so good. We're drowning in its goodness right? We need water to survive. But if that's all we're breathing, then we're not going to survive for long, right? So there's that kind of recognition that I am going to finish my life at some point. I will close my eyes and never open them again. And there will be many, many, many good things I will have left undone. Mm. And that is the nature of it. Mm, what a point to end on. Oh, is it? Was it macabre? <laughs> is it, is it too think... morose for you? No, I, no think... I think there's every, but it's, it's reality. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and I think, and we shouldn't shy away from that point of that is reality. And quite the opposite. I think that should energize us. Yeah, yeah, I think exactly. that should help us to make clear yeah. what our priorities actually are. At some point, you will close your eyes and you will never ever open them again. Yeah. Right. And you know that it doesn't, we don't know how many days we get in our lives. We just know that once today is gone, we are never ever getting it back. And so I want each of these days to be as meaningful myself, meaningful for myself and those around me as I can possibly make it. So whether you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company or, you know, the, the person from CAFU pumping gas into my car at night, like, I hope your days are meaningful. Mm. I hope the hours that you're spending are meaningful because you will never, ever get a single one of them back. 
Yeah. And if we use that as the litmus test for the things that we're doing every day, the task list becomes much more clear for us. Is it meaningful? Does it take me to where I want to go? Is it an echo that I want to be heard after I'm gone? We can use that for prioritization and then we can separate the good from the great. Mm, I think that's an excellent place to end. Yeah, there we go. Um, That's much better. (laughs) It led to that. Um, I know that there's people listening, either they've heard a snippet or they've watched the whole thing going, right, I want to work with you or I want to find out more about, you know, your books and stuff. How can they do that? Yeah, look, Google and I are very good friends. So you can just, you can Google me. You can go to coreyblock.com. My parents saw fit to grace me with an incredibly unique spelling of my name. Yeah. Yeah, C-O-R-R-I-E, block.com. But yeah, Google me, find me on LinkedIn, send me an email through my website. I'm not difficult to get a hold of. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you so much for your my time, pleasure, your energy, your wisdom. I'm, I know I've got so much from today. So Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Cheers. Did you enjoy this episode? If you did, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This is how more people can hear about the amazing stories and guests that we have on here. Even better, you can also share this on social media. Screenshot it and share it on your Instagram or on your Facebook or on your Twitter account. The more people that see these episodes, the more awareness it brings to small businesses and those that are trying to make an impact and difference. And if you want to know more about how you can develop your personal brand, then check out our new website, Brand New Creators, designed by our in-house team. And we are in the business of helping you to increase your online visibility, build industry authority, lead change, motivate and profit. Who doesn't want that? I look forward to speaking to you soon. Until next time. Bye.